could turn to Luke chapter 4 in your Bibles, if you have one with you. This morning we'll be looking at verses 5 through 8 of Luke 4. Luke 4, 5 through 8. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we come to your word now, Lord, I pray that it wouldn't just be interesting to us, but that it would impact our lives practically. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, we would consider the what's at stake uh, when it comes to temptation. Father, I pray that uh, you give us wisdom and that you encourage us in Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Efficiency is one of the mantras of the American way of life. Efficiency is important to Americans because it means greater profit, greater ease, and more pleasure. If we can be efficient, we'll have more time for ourselves, we'll have more money in our pockets, and there will be more pleasure for everyone. It's built in to the American way of life. Uh, if one is really efficient, according to our culture, they're good. They're morally good. It may be one of the things we value higher than almost any other moral. It's maybe the highest of all the things American culture treasures. I wonder if that's true. Do you think it's true that if a politician can promise efficiency, profit, pleasure, if they can really convince people that that's what they bring to the table, then that can trump all other matters of moral impropriety. Is that true? Both parties, who cares what their morals are? Let's just go with efficient, effective leadership. But our ideal of efficiency, I don't think, matches God's ideal of efficiency. I don't know if he values it in the same way we do. Uh, in fact, if, if you want to go back and listen to the Ask Pastor John, uh, John Piper's little podcast last Wednesday, 
this is the topic that uh, he talks about. But I don't think it's just an American thing. I think it's been there ever since the Garden of Eden, ever since God created man. Man was looking for the quick, fast, easy road apart from God. Satan's lie in this temptation to Christ is that Christ can accomplish good apart from the Father and apart from the Father's plan. And his temptation to you and I is that you and I can accomplish good apart from God's plan and timing as well. Uh, Here's what we read in Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That doesn't sound very efficient. That's not even what God said. God said you can eat from all the trees except this one. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He doesn't want you on the fast track. He doesn't want you knowing what He knows. He wants to hold back from you is the satanic lie in the garden. And when we read the Scripture... I would argue that almost everything God does seems inefficient in our, from, from our perspective, from what's natural to us. Think about it. God tells Abraham, leave your home and go into a land you've never seen before. I'll take care of you. I'm going to give it to you. Just go. Think about Joseph. 17 years in prison? Seven years of famine? This does not seem very efficient. Doesn't, couldn't God just make it rain sooner? What is God doing? Why does God work the way He does? How about Israel? 430 years in Egypt? And then when God finally does bring them out of Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness? What are you doing, God? Why do you do things the way you do it? How about the conquest? All right, Joshua, here's what I want you to do. Go march around the city for seven days. I want you to march around it. There's big walls. I want you to shout. Does that seem like a good, efficient plan? Why not just do it on day one if you're going to do it that way? Is that how you would conquer Jericho? How about Gideon? This one strikes me so much. The people are being oppressed by the Midianites. Judges 6.6 says this, Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help. And then in verse 11, we're told that the angel of the Lord came to a man named Gideon while he was beating out wheat in the wine press 
to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, if you're going to be, if you're Gideon and your job is to be beating out the wheat, to separating the wheat and the chaff, what you need to do is you need to go up on a high hill where there's wind and you need to throw it in the air so the chaff can blow away. But Gideon, almighty man of valor, is hiding down in a wine press trying to do the impossible down there because he's afraid. And God picks this mighty man of valor that's hiding in a wine press to deliver Israel. God tells him to go tear down the statues to their gods, to to the to their idols. He's afraid, so he does it at night. He doesn't seem like the most brave soul to pick. But he decides that, okay, if you're going to give victory, I'll gather Israel. So 32,000 men gather. And God says, no, 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 this is too many. Too many men. If, if, if you beat the Midianites with this many men, you're going to think you did it in your own power. Find out who's afraid. Anyone who's afraid, go home. So 22,000 leave. You have 10,000 left. But one might think, well, these are the 10,000 brave men left. Maybe that's what they needed to do. Get rid of the wimps so that the brave men can fight the battle. But then God says, no, this is still too many. Have, have them come down to the water and drink. The ones who lap like a dog, pick those, 300 men. Okay. Now here's God's plan. In one hand, hold the torch up. In another hand, have a trumpet and bring some jars. Blow the trumpet and break some jars and watch me defeat the Midianites. Doesn't quite seem like the way you and I would do things, and yet God picks little puny shepherd boys to defeat Goliath. And on and on and on. But Satan's temptations will always seem to provide a way that seems to make more sense. It'll be quicker. It'll be easier. There'll be instant happiness. The only key is you can't do it God's way. If you go God's way, there's going to be pain and there's going to be suffering and it's going to be hard and you're not going to be able to see how it's going to work out all the time. I know the struggle you came in here with this week. I know it. You might be saying, how do you know my struggle that I came in here with this week? I might not know the specifics of your struggle, but I know your main struggle. Maybe you didn't know your main struggle, but I know your main struggle with which you came to church this week. You ready? Your main struggle was a temptation to satanic worship. Now you're saying, I don't remember 
when this week I was tempted to worship Satan. But as you were tempted not to trust God's words or God's ways, you were actually listening to the whisper of Satan trying to get you to turn from worshiping God, which we're going to look at in a moment, is trusting Him in His Word and doing it your own way. I don't know if you realize that. It seems so normal. It seems so efficient. It seems so American. It seems just to make sense to do it our way, and yet at the core of our turning away from God's ways is a satanic temptation. And it's the one Jesus faced in this text. Look at Luke 4, starting in verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I'll give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it'll all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve, and him only shall you serve. So the main charge of this sermon is this. Listen to God in his word and trust his ways. Listen to God in his word and trust his ways. Warning, his ways are going to seem crazy to you sometimes. They're not going to be quick. They're often not going to be easy. And suffering will seem to be there before pleasure or happiness. Yet, I want you to recognize the shallow, empty promise of Satan's temptation. Look uh, at number one in your notes. Recognize the nature of the temptation. I'm going to give you four things here. It's quick. His temptation is quick. In a moment, he shows him everything on earth and its glory. It offers authority and autonomy right now, just like he offered Eve in the garden. It offers instant glory, so it seems. And Satan's temptation offers a promise to deliver you and to adopt you as his son. We're going to see how Satan's temptation is really an offer to come to the better father is what he was trying to trick Eve with and what he's trying to get Jesus with. Satan's goal is to get Jesus to doubt God's plan for him and to bypass it, according to John MacArthur. That's what he says this, this temptation is all about, to doubt God's plan for him and to bypass it, to go another way. 
Look at verse 5. The devil took him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world. That's really quick. In a moment of time. He got to see a vision. It was right there. He didn't have to look forward in faith. Satan said, look at this. It's yours. Look at its glory. I'll give it to you right now. And he said to him, I'll give it to you. That's emphatic in the text. Look, I'm offering it to you. You can really have it. All this authority in their glory. For it's been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. Now I know what you're thinking. Does Satan really have the authority to give Jesus all the nations? Well, here's what you need to know. In John 12.31, here's how Jesus speaks of Satan. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. In John 14.30, he says this, I'll no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me. That's what I want you to get from this. <laughs> Satan comes. He tries to get a claim on Jesus as the ruler of the world. He says, he doesn't have a claim on me. He had already defeated him in the wilderness. He said, I listen to the Father. Ephesians 2.1 says this. Here's how Satan's described. Uh, speaking of Christians, uh, in their old life, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's speaking of Satan, the prince of the power of the air. Here's what MacArthur says, though. That does not mean, however, that he literally possesses it, but rather that he is the ruler of the evil world system that dominates the nations of the world. It is God who determines the times of nations and existence and their boundaries. I'll give you some verses. Romans 13.1 says this, Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. So all the authority that Satan has is like rope that God for this time has allowed him to have. 1 Chronicles 29.11 says this, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. God possesses ultimate sovereignty, even over Satan. Second Chronicles 26 says, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not, are, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Satan, however, is offering to give maybe something he doesn't really possess in the way he's saying he possesses it. But Satan could be saying, I'm just going to let go of my evil influence 
And this is kind of a tricky temptation. You might think Satan coming up to Jesus and saying, worship me, is an easy one for Jesus. But let's think about it for a minute. Satan offers the end goal. What, why has Jesus come? He's come to rule over the nations, to be king, to bring righteousness. And Satan's coming and saying, here's the deal. Right now, you've been starving for 40 days in the wilderness. I don't know if you really <laughs> want to follow your father's plan. This seems like a whole lot of suffering. Oh, yeah, and what do you have in front of you with his way? Rejection of all your friends? Bearing the sin of the world? Dying the most torturous death? All so that you can be ruler over this world here. Let's, let me just cut a deal. It'll be quick. You worship me, the better father who doesn't want you to suffer, doesn't want you to have pain, and I'll give it to you right now. That's all. You can have it. You don't have to take the hard road. You can take the easy road and get what your end goal wants. Now, of course, this is a lie. If Jesus takes the bait, everyone in this room will suffer forever in hell for all eternity. There will be no sacrifice for sin. But think of the political implications. In a moment, Jesus can take over the reins over the nations. Think how many less abortions there'd be immediately. See, it starts to look tempting as you start to think about the temptation that Satan is putting uh, before him. He offers him authority. He offers him glory. He offers an adoption. I'll be an easier father on you. He offers him, though, what Jesus already knows his father, who's spoken out of heaven at his baptism right before this, is going to give him. Because Jesus knew Psalm 2. Now listen to this. Psalm 2, verse 7. I will tell you of the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like the potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So Jesus knew that his father already said, I'm going to give you the kingdom. And Jesus also knew that that road was not going to be easy, that it was going to be difficult. When he was baptized, he was already identifying himself with sinners. Baptism represents death as you go under the water. And he knew 
that he must follow the Father's plan, even though this is a real temptation. It's the temptation of, you can do good without God. It's a lie. I don't know if you realize it, but whenever you seek to do something that's good in your own strength, you're falling to this temptation. You're believing the lie that you can do good apart from Christ. That's a lie. That's not true. And if you can, you become a thief. Because all glory belongs to Christ, but as you try to do good in your own strength, you steal the glory for yourself and all of us naturally are glory thieves. We want to do it in our own strength. We want to think that we don't need to rely on God, that we can do it. Waiting on Him is too slow. I don't understand it, we can think. But we must recognize we can do no good apart from God. Second, we must recognize the cost of the temptation. We looked at the nature of it, but what's the cost of the quick and easy road? If then, if you then will worship me, it'll be yours, he says in verse 7. You can have this if you worship me. Now, Satan doesn't just want to get you and I to fall and to get Christ to fall, but Satan in this temptation is actually craving what he's always craved. Now, a lot of commentators think Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14, are speaking of Satan. And if they're not speaking of Satan specifically, they're speaking of him generally for sure. But here's what the prophet Isaiah says about Satan. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Satan craved the worship that only God deserves. He got the worship of Adam when Adam and Eve listened to his voice rather than to the Father's voice. And he loved it. And now the second Adam is on the scene. The second Son of God. And he wonders if once again he can get the second man to worship him. He wants it. He craves it. (laughs) You and I craving adulation and glory is us being like our first father, the devil. That's what Jesus called the Pharisees' uh, father. He says, you think your father's God, your father's the devil. You want the glory and worship of all the people around you? You think you're great? You're just like your father, the devil. And we all can admit that we often want to do it in our own strength 
and receive glory for ourselves. And he's trying to get the worship from Christ, but we must consider Satan's fall. He was thrown out of heaven with a third of the angels. He was an angel. He fell. He will live in everlasting destruction. The cost is death. He's a liar. What he promises, he doesn't keep, unlike God promises and and keeps his promises. Look at what Jesus says in verse 8, though. Jesus answered him, it is written, once again he quotes Scripture, you shall worship the Lord your God, in Him only shall you serve. If you ever wonder what the value of Scripture is, notice that in all three temptations, Jesus doesn't say, look, Satan, I created you. I created everything. I'm the Son of God. Get out of here. But Jesus quotes the Word of God. What authority do you think he thinks the Word of God holds? All three temptations, he quotes the Word of God, and he says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. He quotes Deuteronomy 6, uh, 13. And in the context... I want to read the five verses in Deuteronomy to help you understand what Jesus is thinking. In Deuteronomy 6.10, he says this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear or worship. Him you shall serve, and by His name shall you swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. Here's what Moses was concerned with as he's writing Deuteronomy, is he says, God's going to be kind to you. He's going to give you what he promised. But be careful that you don't start thinking big of yourself and think, look what I've gotten by my own strength and with my own hands. Glory be to me, which would be beginning to worship, become an idolater and worship idols. But Jesus knew that God was good that he kept his promises, and that his way was right. Here is how we worship God. What's the nature of true worship? If Jesus says we're supposed to worship him alone and not Satan, what's the nature of true worship? I want to show you a couple passages. The first one is Psalm 37. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Psalm 37. And there's several things in this psalm that teach us what true worship is. 
I'm just going to give you some words that are going to pop up here. Fret not. If you want to worship God, fret not, trust, delight, commit, wait, anger not, revenge not, consider the end. If I was going to try to summarize this psalm, it would be fret not, trust, delight, commit to the Lord's way is what he says there, wait, anger not, revenge not, consider the end. Let's read the psalm together. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers and be not envious of wrongdoers. Boy, they're on the easy path with all sorts of delights, so it seems. For they'll soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Now His way is hard, just like Christ's way is hard. Trust Him and He'll act. He'll bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Now get, this is the hard one. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way. The hardest part about waiting is looking around at everyone else having what we want. It is so hard to wait when we're doing that. But He says... Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Verse 8, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Don't be vengeful. Don't be angry as though God's not being good to you. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. You have to see the end of the road. If you take the easy road, not God's way, not Christ's way, not taking up your cross and following Him by faith, you'll wither like the grass. You may have pleasures for today and tomorrow, but you'll be weeping by the end of the week. There is no true hope in any other way than God's way. Turn to Hebrews 6, another passage I want to show you. <clears throat> Hebrews 6, starting verse 10. It is so important that we know this. Hebrews 6, verse 10 for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. Oh, this is so important. <clears throat> you want to know what it takes to serve the saints? Self-sacrificial love. It is hard. It is hard to love others more than yourselves. 
But he says, God's not unjust. He's not... What you think is a waste that no one's seeing, there's no reward. God doesn't overlook it, he says. And we desire, verse 11, each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit, inherit the promises. He says, look at us. We, we still have our hope. We're waiting. For when God, who made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I'll bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, don't miss this, having waited are patiently waited, obtained the promise. You want to know what it means to worship God more than anything? It's to wait on Him, to trust Him. When all your flesh is saying, I want to do the opposite. Those who wait will not be disappointed. Here's how James says it, James 5, verse 7. James 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers. Now listen to how important this is. Until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. What glorifies God is not people that find themselves strong and have a great plan, but those who see themselves as they really are, weak and needing to know the way and looking to Him and saying, you have to be my strength. Because if you can do it, you'll steal His glory. But if you can't do it, and you wait on Him and you say, what's your word say? Then He is glorified. That's what it means to worship Him. And finally, I want to show you what it means to set your mind on things above. True worshipers have their eyes set on things above. In Matthew 16.21, here's what we read. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He knows the path in front of Him. He says, here's what's going to happen, but watch what man does. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, 
this shall never happen to you. You're not going to take that road of suffering and death, Peter says. It shall never happen. But he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Because he knew that in Peter's words, the whisper of Satan was in his ear saying, take the easy road, not of suffering, not of God's plan, but your own way. And then he said to Peter, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I'm telling you, there's a whole lot of no good biblical counsel out there that will counsel you to take the easy road, to take the road that leads to death, and you got to have the presence of mind to recognize what's going on and say, you are a hindrance to me. That is not true. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's what Jesus told them. And then Jesus told his disciples, and this is what he tells you here today. Let him, anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he'll repay each poor person according to what he has done. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, Peter, you have to get on the hard road. There's blessing There's blessing in it, in God's way. There's suffering, there's waiting, there's no doubt. All the disciples suffered terribly. Eleven of them got killed for their faith. The other one died deserted on an island. He says, but if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. If you want real life, you got to follow God's way you got to look to Christ. And when you become a Christian, what it means to become a Christian is to realize why Jesus came and what he did for you and then cling to him. Jesus came down to this earth to live a perfect life that you and I could never live. And at the end of that life, he went to the cross. And God put all those who would trust in him, all their sins on Christ And Jesus became the wrath absorber, the propitiation, the payment, the one who makes the payment. He became the sacrificial lamb that takes our place. He takes our sin and he gives us his perfect life. All because the Father loves loves sinners. That's why God sent him to us. Jesus died for your sin. And then he puts his spirit inside you. So that Jesus says, if you follow me, they'll treat you the same way they treated me. On this earth, 
you bear a cross. But there's glory at the end of it. On this earth, there's suffering. And the main suffering he's talking about isn't just the suffering of living in the fallen world, but the moment you trust Christ, here's what you do. You take your old self, the old Sam, the moment I believed in Christ, I took him to the cross and I nailed him there. And unfortunately, Sam dies slow on this cross. All throughout my life, my flesh is wanting to come back alive. But by the Spirit, I'm told that I need to crucify my flesh, my selfishness. I need to continue to put to death this old self, and it's a battle. And if you're a Christian, you're in the battle right now, fighting against following your way, Satan's way, and not God's way. But at the end of the road, finally the old Sam will die. And just as Christ was raised with a body that will never get sick, will never die, will never sin, I as well, finally, this old self will be dead. And right now, here's the amazing thing. I'm told from Ephesians 2 that I'm seated with Christ in the heavens. Already my place is there in Christ. Will you trust Him? I can't promise you your life will get easier. It'll probably get harder. But I can tell you this. You'll be following your Creator. He'll never leave you or forsake you. And even in the midst of suffering, you'll have a peculiar peace. And and as the mercy of God comes and helps you endure to the end. Father, I pray that you help us see clearly like Christ saw. That though it would have been easier going Satan's way, at first, so it looks, it leads to death. Father, give us that type of wisdom. Lord, I pray that we would encourage each other, that we would help remind each other we forget so easily. Lord, help us fight the fight. Help us fight the fight Paul fought. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.